Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds Podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. For nearly 40 years, Paul Edwards has been at the center of several miraculously successful philanthropic efforts. He began his career with a record-breaking higher education campaign, and then decided he needed to leave the field for his faith, entering the seminary. There, he unexpectedly discovered a new and profound spiritual role for fundraising, which he applied when tapped to lead the fundraising effort at Prison Fellowship. Since that time, he has led successful major campaigns for Mercy Ships International, Gordon College, and Wycliffe's $2 billion Last Languages Initiative, making the Bible available in all the world's languages, as well as serving as a teacher and guide to hundreds of other organizations around the world. Today, as Principal Consultant Edwards and Creason, he collaborates with inspired leaders and organizations to produce inspiring results. I spoke with Paul about his remarkable journey and what he describes as his theology of fundraising. You always project calm. I'm sure you recognize that. But you've never stopped moving. I mean, that's evident in your career, but it's also evident when you talk to people. Where is that? What's that all about? <laughs> Great question, Jay. Um, the first 10 years of my fundraising experience coming out of Stanford, I would say I was a an anxious fundraiser. And... Um, I had uh, very little peace. Uh, at, at the time, uh, the development operation was going through sort of upheaval of several new VPs, and there was a lot of pressure for performance, and I felt it. And so the, uh, the 10 years or 11 years that I did fundraising at Stanford, after having been an undergrad there, I'd say I was pretty anxious. And uh, it, was a, um, it was actually a, 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 a faith issue for me uh, about, you know, am, uh, uh, am I in this place to fail or am I actually not in charge of what happens with people and with their fundraising? Can I, uh, the saying is, don't just do something, stand there. And can I actually believe that uh, perhaps God has an interest in seeing good stuff happen to organizations, secular and non-secular? And I, uh, I got a piece with that and had a, a, profound, a profound experience uh, from being at a point of wanting to turn my back on fundraising. I decided, no, I'm going to bring this newfound, uh, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, just grateful. And that changed my fundraising for the next, I'd say, 35 years, because this is, this is 46 years now doing this. So. Wow, that's, that's, uh, that's a... That's a lifetime of many careers, but <laughs> yours continues at a very quick pace. Um, but that's all after you kind of made this decision or yes, yes. decided to view this differently. We don't know how you got to that. Where, where are you from originally? Yeah. I uh, grew up uh, in the first part of my life was in Illinois. So mom and dad were immigrants. Uh, they... From where? Uh, from the UK. So uh, dad was from Liverpool and mum was from the south of England. And uh, dad uh, was studying to be a priest, Catholic priest. 
And uh, mom was an actress and they met and they, they left the UK and came to the States. And so in the fifties, post-World War II and the U S is energized and thriving and uh, they started new lives. So I was raised in a, in a culturally Catholic family. So pre Vatican II, everything in Latin and um, oldest of four kids. So four and five years, or as we like to call them Irish twins, you know, everything <laughs> just close together and uh, Catholic green school, Catholic high school and moved out to California when my father's work took him to California and uh, did my, the second half of my growing up years in California. What was your father doing for work at that time? Um, so if one studies to be a priest and then decides to make a mid-career change, uh, there aren't a whole lot of things that you can go into that are going to be gainfully employed. But he became a consultant, mm-hmm. a management consultant. Uh, was hired by a company that uh, had a worked out during World War II uh, system. And uh, managers had to have capacities to plan, organize, lead, and monitor. So he taught a curriculum to in the two-thirds world on planning, organizing, leading, and monitoring, and led these seminars, and was a, really a brilliant speaker. Um, but, I, but I said he, he trafficked in unexperienced truth, which was something that I didn't what? Wait, what? <laughs> Talk about that. What, what, what do you mean? <laughs> well, one, I think one should be cautious of folks who are proclaimed as teachers but do not have robust experience in actually doing it. And uh, when, as you know, I've been a consultant maybe for 35 years, I have never, during that whole time, stepped out of being actively engaged in operation as a line fundraiser, uh, except for the last three years when my partner and I, business partner and I started this new company. So all that whole time, over 40 years, uh, I'd have a foot in the teaching and consulting, but always felt I needed to be a reflective practitioner. So I'm imagining this now, you're a child of a person who is going out there and telling people how to do things and probably using some pretty potent skills to do that. Yes. (laughs) But not, not doing it from what is often these days, I guess, called lived experience, but, 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 but there must've been empathy as a, as kind of a driving principle in that. It wasn't just to bring money to the family to eat, was it? Or else he would have done something different. Management consulting is a specific activity. Yes. It's not just something you do. It's not like working at a gas station. So yes. you do have to have, I think, exceptional powers of observation and then the discipline to not answer questions the client isn't asking. That's that's very interesting. Um, I'd love to back to that later, but I don't want to leave your mom out of this conversation. Okay. (laughs) Sounds like a fascinating person. So you've got an actress in the household. And for those who don't know, you've spent a fair amount of your time, uh, even as a, as a fundraising consultant and teacher, um, being able to channel voices and perform. 
Um, but there's more to it than that. So what was it like being raised by someone who spent time on the stage? Yes. Her enthusiastic um, child rearing, since dad was traveling a great deal, um, missing in action, I would say, uh, being raised by mom, she was a, a storyteller and also uh, lived out the phrase, oh, Paul, don't just tell me, show me. And so <laughs> that became a fairly high standard. So put on costumes and make a production and uh, do it for the neighborhood. And then among my siblings, uh, bring them into the act too. So there was a, an element of uh, family showmanship. And then eventually uh, as a high schooler and then at Stanford, I did a lot of acting and discovered I could act, I could direct, I could also design sets, uh, I could create scripts, improvs. Uh, but as I think you know, uh, Jay, that uh, once my kids came into this world and they discovered that both of their parents, so Jeannie and I, husband and wife, we poured all of that into our kids. So our kids were sort of fatally cursed to be singer, dancer, actors. And so all three of my kids uh, all have MFAs in acting and they have, they have <laughs> married actors. So, you know, we feel like we're 0 for 6. <laughs> they are, they are uh, very, uh, very comfortable in front of people and on stage and performing. Were you always as comfortable in front of people? Because often people who are performers aren't necessarily, uh, sometimes it's compensating for other things. There, there are, there are a lot of people who are shy is the wrong word, but they're, they're, um, they have an internal world and then they can share that or perhaps mask it in performance. Were you always ready to run out there and open the curtains and dance and sing? Um, I was. What helped me was remarkably poor eyesight. So minus my glasses, I'm legally blind. And so I did much of my performance pre-contact lenses and without glasses. And so I actually couldn't see an audience to be afraid of it. And um, You couldn't and see them, but you could feel them. I could. And that energy was just enough. So I could have, as you described, both the interior life, what maybe I thought was going to work well, um, and then the energy of the audience. But as as my kids have pointed out, that's a kind of technical performance, appropriate maybe for someone who has a UK context, um, but is not what I would call the the way that Americans, for instance, teach acting, which is to be open to what the other person gives you, mm -hmm. uh, to say yes, to be listening deeply with what they're bringing to the table. Uh, don't come with a preconceived notion. So from a theatrical performance space, I, I was not really good at adapting to what the other actor was doing on stage, but I was very good at uh, being a performer, but not necessarily an actor in community and uh, that's very interesting also because it, it i know we're going to talk a lot about fundraising here but you always engage people where they are and that's there's no, there's no performance in that in fact a lot of fundraising the accusation and perhaps it's fair 
is that there is a performative aspect to it, that people show up and they're ready to ask if they're if they will be willing to do that at all. That's a different set of problems. But if they're willing to do it, they might be doing it as if they're trying to get something out of somebody rather than engaging with someone about who they are and where they're trying to go. So it's funny that <laughs> that this uh, part that you say might have been not uh, the at least the American style of performance you do every day when you engage with clients on projects. It's true. And uh, as you know, when I teach fundraising, I, I decry the push style of fundraising, which is a form of selling and uh, manipulation, um, possibly convincing people against their will. And I have in the last 35 years, wholly embraced the notion of pull, uh, that an, an individual convinces themselves. Uh, the, the left hand of pull is listening deeply. The right hand of pull is asking very good questions. So, so rather than sell or push, if I will listen deeply and if I, if I will ask appropriate questions, the prospect will convince him or herself. And I know we're bouncing around a bit, but you were at Stanford. That was a massive campaign. It was highly successful. I think that was the first billion dollar private education campaign in the United States, probably in the world. And uh, did some of your feelings about this push, did that arise during that experience? It did. Is it, and why haven't you named your dog Stanford? I guess is my real question. <laughs> uh, Jay, I'd say I burnt out on fundraising at okay. Stanford. Uh, I, I came to a point where uh, not just one campaign, which was the Stanford Centennial campaign, but I also had was the campaign director for the Lucille Salter Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford campaign and for the Stanford Hospital Modernization campaign. So two medical center related campaigns as prelude to over the course of the 11 years that I was there and the pressure and the what I would say bias toward push. Uh, was uh, for me became a burnout. I, I couldn't uh, could, couldn't continue it. So, right. But um, you know, I'm I'm enthused that there is there is a different style and a different approach, and it it actually it works really well. And volunteers, who are sometimes the ablest fundraisers, they don't know that they are. When you tell them, I, I don't need you to master push. I need you to be exquisite at listening and asking good questions and and being present. Right. being wholly present with the individual that you're with. Um, but again, I, I bounced ahead in time. You, you were studying, and I think you studied economics. Yes, business science. <laughs> so what, what was that all about? And how did you go from business to then theater to then this world? Yeah, you know, I, I completed my econ degree for my dad, and I completed the theater degree, you know, for myself. So, yeah. Okay. It was a, it was a, a uh, again, I, I was raised in a sort of culturally Catholic experience too. So the, uh, the, the elements of being the oldest and then having lockstep uh, siblings who right behind uh, uh, my sister went to Santa Clara. She is a fundraiser uh, for Catholic charities. Uh, brother right behind her, uh, he, started a biotechnology 
research company that provides resources to the biotech industry on who holds what patents, and he sold it. And he's then started another one and then sold a second one. So he's becoming the sort of serial biotech entrepreneur. And then the the, the youngest became a um, professor of engineering out of all places, Stanford. So he is a professor, full professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford University. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it, yeah, interesting to see how all these lives turned out. Are you all pretty close still or do you talk? Mostly, often? mostly, yes, we talk often. And now that we have, uh, Jeannie and I have relocated back to California, then we see them pretty frequently. But we, we went we went different directions uh, from that uh, from that uh, experience. Now, I know another thing that often comes up in conversations with people involved in this field, wherever they are in it, has to do with their earliest experiences in and with respect to philanthropy. Um, so whether it's giving or volunteering, whatever it is, I haven't heard much about that yet, but you, you've referenced several times about this kind of culture of the Catholic culture within the household and beyond. And, and I know that uh, church for me was part of that. It was watching parents involved in passing the plate as as ushers are being on the vestry or or uh you know being the choir mother there are lots of different ways that we were involved in those things what did you have kind of an image or a model or were you actively engaged or did people make you be engaged in something that we might think of as as philanthropy i think the earliest lesson of philanthropy was receiving my allowance from my father it was always it was a dollar and it was in four quarters. And so one quarter was for what I wanted to spend it on. Two quarters were for savings. And one quarter was to give in the offering plate on Sunday. So that was a deep lesson. Yes. Um, do you remember how that felt to be giving away the quarter? Um, uh, so when we... we think about the sort of the larger posture of what is philanthropy. Um, the ability to have resource to answer a need is an extraordinary achievement um, to uh, most of the world has not the excess to give and they see suffering and they see pain and they go, I, I have no substance to give. I have, I, I uh, it would be a waste of time and energy to ask. And so they shut themselves off from being the human answer to a situation that they see. So when one has that and realizes, my goodness, I, I've got these resources, I'm a steward of them. I don't possess them, but I, they pass through my hands. Maybe I get to do something good with this. So. So it sets you apart in one way. The second, it turns out, Jay, I know you know this. Um, philanthropy is a cure. I was invited by the uh, Ministry of Culture in China to deliver fundraising training in China to the China Nonprofit Organization Network, the, the starting up of the fledgling. This was in uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And... Uh, I asked the Minister of Culture at one of our many dinners why they were interested in understanding and studying and creating a culture of philanthropy in China. And he said, uh, China is an antidote to the corrupting elements and influences of capitalism. 
It says it is the it is the only thing we've seen that causes capitalism to become gentler, to become fairer, to become kinder. Quite a remarkable answer from the Communist Party official in the observation about philanthropy. It, so. it is, and it's also interesting to hear um, a different interpretation of philanthropy now within our own cultural context, our own political context, where often philanthropy is criticized yeah, because no. it's seen as a way of masking uh, greed or you know un unfettered capitalism. And so there you're hearing from the Communist Party of China, very different kind of assessment. You've seen both sides of that, uh, not just because of your travels, but also within this field where some of it, like you say, is push. And it's about dealing with major philanthropists and maybe their wants and needs. And so I wonder, uh, again, is this was this an evolution for you as you went from the guy working, making that happen uh, to well, what do I really want to see happen? Yes, it was. Uh, I, I've said to you, uh, I believe that uh, uh, as we went from the quiet phase to the public phase for the first billion dollar campaign, I knew that my season at Stanford was ending. And uh, so I announced to our development office that I was going to seminary, which that's a pretty significant change. So what was the reaction when you, <laughs> do they have any? No, no clue. They were they were completely surprised. Okay. Uh, he's going to New York to become an actor, or he's going to seminary. Okay. <laughs> and um, so, I, really, I, I mean, I went to seminary. I went to Fuller Seminary, right. and uh, you know, my belief was that I was I was going there because I was done with fundraising. I'd done everything I was going to do. It. Uh, I was uh, disappointed with it as an activity, and it, I felt burnt out. And many fundraisers do feel burnt out. Um, that they're they're at that edge, and for me it was this just this. What have you done for me lately? Forever pressing in. And so while in seminary, I met a man named Chuck Colson, um, and uh, Colson happened to be there one day, and he was uh, talking about the work that he did with prisoners, and uh, so I was fascinated to hear it. I came up to him afterwards, and uh, and told him my story, and, and he said, "Well." Uh, Looks like uh, Stanford invested 11 years of your salary in professional development. Maybe you should use that fundraising to some worldly good. And I said, no, I don't think so. I think I'm done. I'm over. He said, uh, he said, well, maybe, maybe you don't have a theology of God's sovereign provision and the place of human means. And I said, hang on, say that again. <laughs> a theology of God's sovereign provision and the place of human means. Uh, you're right, I, I don't have that. So he challenged me during my three years of being in seminary to, as I read my Bible and take my classes, just take notes, notes of uh, passages, verses of scripture that came up that had to do with the philanthropic exchange or asking for a gift, not a commodity exchange, you know, or not taxes, but a gift. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, maybe I'll, yeah, maybe maybe there's a dozen passages, 116 passages, excluding the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, and excluding the Old Testament sacrificial system in uh, Leviticus and Numbers. And I realized I pretty much knew nothing about this notion of perhaps a God's sovereign provision in the world. 
and it led me on this as a sort of journey in a, in a Western Christian theological framework. There was a time before there was time, space, and matter. And God existed in that pre-time, pre-space, pre-matter. And when you read in Genesis the words, let there be, that's a gift. Because out of nothingness, time, space, and matter are flung into existence. And you go, my goodness, the deity set this all in motion. You know, the 17th century uh, developed a, a theology of deism, which was that God was a, a cosmic watchmaker. He made the watch, wound it up, and then walked away. Well, I get this other thing as sort of in reading these, you know, scripture verses, but also reading now church history and go, gee, part of the teaching is that God actually is present in this world, um, that there is a sustaining element. There is an interest in this, you know, look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. They don't sow nor reap. And I, I, I like this, you know, did, did you pay your gravity bill today by any chance, Jay? I, I didn't pay my gravity bill. Or how about the oxygen bill? The monthly, you know, you get an, a monthly oxygen bill, right? You know, so. Well, I'm sure they'll find a way to bill us for that, but no. For that. Yeah. <laughs> so it turns out that this world. Is a gift. Yeah. Think about the six miles of the Earth's crust. Okay. Within the six miles of the Earth's crust are buried gold, water, precious gems, uranium, whatever. They're buried there. In a sense, the Earth's crust is a ticking time bomb of answers to prayer, right? They're already there, but they haven't been discovered yet, you know. And uh, but when they are, you go, oh my goodness, you go, well, it's been there for a long time. So the second notion of God is not just starts it off, but there's this, there's this unseen provision. You know, when you and I are in major city like New York or Los Angeles, and we go walking down the street. Madison Avenue, there are people who are human answers to need, but they don't know that they're an answer to need. And they're asking this question, what do I do with all this money? What's the purpose of my life? I'm a wealthy person and I've got a hollow life here. They just don't know that they are walking around as the answer to someone's need. Okay. Well, it turns out God is the same way. He's 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 in this context of I'm providing answers. You know, Great. That's lovely. Fascinating. But wait, there's more. You know, in the Catholic and the Protestant traditions, there is this notion of new heaven and new earth, the sort of the post-revelation, the descending, the heaven and earth that exists, a new one is coming in. So, so to net it out, God is a, is an entrepreneurial donor, God is a sustaining donor, and God is, a, is an ultimate donor, right? And then and then the, the, the kicker, the surprise kicker was, so where is Jesus now? He's ascended into heaven. And seated at the right hand of the Father. And in Christian teaching, they say, right. what is he doing? He's making intercession. Well, when I look up the word intercession, all intercession means is asking. He's asking. It turns out, turns out the second person of the Trinity has a day job, which is to ask on behalf of this world, the people who are asking him. We, we, so we call that prayer. Yeah. Okay. Well, just that little, you know, rump. That's a basic theology of going, so why am I anxious? Why am I freaking out here? If it, I had nothing to do with the start, I sure have nothing to do with the sustaining, and this big surprise coming. Then all I need to do is maybe orient myself to say, so why am I anxious? If, if this notion of God wants to have the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, meaning he doesn't care, he wants it green, or to feed 
to feed dirty crows as well as, you know, beautiful pigeons. Okay. Then apparently in this theology, a great hospital, a great university, anything that's a bulwark against chaos, support those things. Those things deserve to be helped. So it, 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 it shifted my theology of a, I don't need to do stuff that's only non-secular. I can do secular and non-secular. I can help organization. You had to have been in a place to receive that message, though, because it, it sounds like, in a way, you had it as a child if you already had this lesson from your parents about the quarter. But yeah. that was very much a personal expression of you were going to give. But yeah. then later, you went through this experience at Stanford. I know there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but then you made a decision. I'm going to do one thing or another. I'm going to take this road. And you went down this road. That's not what many people would do. You made a decision. <laughs> but that also means you must have been able to receive this idea. And yeah. I know we call this by different names. Um, but one one way of looking at that potentially is a gift. I mean, you were you were open to that, just like the person walking down the street has this thing to give and they don't know what to do with it. But they maybe they haven't been asked about it yet. But also maybe they're not ready to receive that message or that yeah. calling or whatever we wish to call it. So why were you suddenly ready to receive this? And how is it that you were able to see that I can take this and go over here and then when you talk to a guy like chuck colson and there's we could we could spend a lot of time just about who he is and how you must have uh, yeah. read that script and then decided to take action yeah. uh how are you ready to to receive that well you know so i'm at this point in my third year in seminary and uh i mean he goes i, I think i think maybe you should come you know come to work for us you know and i say Chuck, do you realize that raising money for prisoners is like, it's like squeezing water from rocks, blood from turnips? And he said, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. He said, but if, if your emerging theology is actually going to work, it's going to work in the most difficult circumstances, not the easiest. Mm -hmm. said, why don't you, if you're at all intrigued in this, see what it's like. And uh, so my <laughs> coming out of seminary, instead of going into a pastorate, I went to work for Prison Fellowship to raise money did, for prisoners, have, prisoners, victims, and families. But did you come to that? Like, there, if you'd never been in a prison, let me ask it that way. Had you ever been in a prison? No. Had you ever encountered people who might be in the in that system? In the, no, you know, no, no. But what was weird, what was weird was I, I just said yes to, okay, I'll try it. I'm thinking I have everything I need. And pretty much within the first month, I realized, I don't, I don't have, I don't have even the basic knowledge here. I don't know what America's prisons are like. And we'd moved to Northern Virginia and I get a guy who comes into the office in my first two months, walks into my office and he says, I want to volunteer for prison fellowship. Uh, okay. Uh, backstory. Yeah. I've been, uh, I'm under indictment for uh, wire fraud and uh, securities fraud, and I'm going to go to federal trial. And my attorney suggested that it would be a good idea if I put in some volunteer hours with a prison ministry. So you know, I, I, I don't think that's actually why we exist <laughs> for you to, you know, chalk up good points. And I said, but I'm attending this little local church here. And if you'd like to come down and maybe just come to our fellowship group here and, and decide if you really want to, I mean, because that's actually what's behind this thing, not just that it's good for, he says, I don't care, you know, my turn. So this guy, uh, his name is Stephen, uh, 
starts to come to church with us. And I start, I'm starting working for this prison organization. And I get the privilege of walking with this guy through his arraignment, trial, first trial, conviction, sentencing. Um, we store his worldly possessions in our basement because he has no family, has no one. And uh, it's white collar crime. And when he gets out, he's released to our care. And but we, we <laughs> while he was in prison, I kid you not, Jay, we took our kids to prison. So they went to Allenwood and we had Christmas. We had Easter. We had uh, drive up to Allenwood, go to see Stephen. And how, how old were the kids? What? They were, they were tiny. You know, they were, you know, Sky was maybe three years old, four years old. Legger was, you know, five or six or whatever. Then they'd go into the prison yard and they'd play and you know, and we and I you know, go to see Stephen. Things, so I also didn't ask you probably the most important question to ask any spouse of another exceptional person, <laughs> which is I didn't learn how you met your wife or any of this. But 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 without even going down that that path, she when you met, she probably wasn't thinking I'm going to marry the man who's going to leave Stanford join the seminary and go and work for prison fellowship, move across the country and be visiting people in prison. So where was she with you on this journey? Was she right there? Was this, what was that like for her? She was a willing accomplice, but you know, this is, I met her at Stanford. So she was getting her graduate degree in education. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, a brilliant singer, uh, pianist and, uh, and, uh, but also, you know, I was just sort of this angry agnostic, post-Catholic in my, you know, Stanford years. And uh, I met this, and this was Jesus, this Jesus person that was my wife, you know? So I was like, how can that, how can this attractive, smart woman believe that stuff? And so I, I, I was pretty ornery. You didn't, you did not, <laughs> it was like taking a porcupine to dinner. You, I was <laughs> pretty, pretty ornery in my junior, senior year, things like this. But she kind of, she and her dad uh, pretty much loved me out of that state and into a, into a relationship with God, you know? And um, so she has been, uh, she's been my sort of faithful companion in this. We've been married 45 years, you know, and uh, gone on this journey too. And wasn't what she, it wasn't the bill of good. She thought she's marrying the Stanford guy and he's going to, you know, it turns out she did. And that was the only thing that was part of it. We all, we've, we've lived around the country. We've lived, you know, 11 different places. Um, and, uh, which is interesting for our kids now as actors, because their ability to wherever they end up, uh, just enter in and start flourishing. Either you can do that or you can't, you know? So, right. so they, that was the thing that they, and they started doing that, I guess, at an early age, even doing things like visiting a prison, which if you're not, if you don't have a parent or a family member who's been through that, that experience, then you wouldn't have that. So they went, they visited um, and uh, I, the man eventually came out, and then I guess you had some responsibility f uh, for his re-entry. Yes, uh, and he went into went into real estate, and he had a flourishing career. The woman that he, a woman that he met in the fellowship group that we're in, they eventually got married. Uh, she had already had a son, so it was a second marriage for her. And uh, you know, sadly to say, uh, he passed away a couple of years uh, a couple of years ago. But he lived. He was a man who. 
lived his life on a different trajectory following that whole experience. So, so that was my graduate experience in prison ministry and realized, uh, okay, so in a difficult situation, a difficult setting here, this is either going to bring out latent anxiety or I was going to be actually remarkably at peace in this because I would lean into the, I don't have the answer, but I don't have the, I have to have the answer. I, I need to be present with this person and I need to do my homework on good questions. Can you talk about that a bit? Because that's kind of the cornerstone of a lot of, yeah. a lot of all that we do, but especially a lot of what you do. Um, I'll make a pretty sweeping statement. Any person who's at the top of their game in their craft or career knows how to ask the right questions. So let's take car talk on national public radio. <laughs> sure. Click, click and clack the Tapper brothers. This is auto repair. Uh, Unless you know your craft so well, there's no way that you could be on radio 3,000 miles away and ask five or six questions about that sound under the car there. Is it the right side, the left side? You know, does it do You know, here is what it, and diagnose it on the radio, then have a really high percentage chance. Well, it turns out plumbers, a really great plumber who's trying to solve a problem, has a great rubric of questions, uh, um, contractors, but let's not forget the professions, you know, an attorney, a doctor, a great teacher, uh, anyone who achieves a certain level of mastery, they, they get to it through this studied part of, well, what are the good questions to ask and how do I ask them in sequence? And it turns out in fundraising, that's kind of the missing piece for most frontline fundraisers is that they are, they are amateurs meaning they're doing it out of love, but they're amateurs with regard to their question formation and then question asking ability. They why why do you think that is? I think they take it for granted and that they've been told nothing with regard to the skill of handling objections by good questions, asking for a gift by good questions, uh, negotiating to a close by good questions. They don't realize the power and the value of a well-formed question or sequence of questions. But when you awaken that awareness, as you know, as you know, in training, all of a sudden, person shakes their head and goes, "Oh, I ought to be keeping a list, and I ought to be, I ought to be practicing these." And um, so, when they discover that, it's like a uh, for those who take it seriously, it's a little harrowing, and then it's a refresh on their work because they go, "You're right, I." I just need to be getting very good at listening and asking the right questions and right sequence. And I can practice that. Paul, I, I, one of the things that strikes me about this is I'm always trying to look for better questions in part because I'm not convinced that I'm asking the right things, but I'm wondering as you go through this process, I know I'm again bouncing around here. If you're always looking for deeper, more revealing questions, just because you're, you're naturally a curious person. What, yeah. So do, yeah. in other words, do we default to the click and clack? Uh, I want to know where the sound is, or are we in our field where we're trying to deal with the things that people may not even recognize are influencing their, yeah. their relationship to community and family? Are, are, how deep do we need to go? Yeah. I, 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 it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know that depth is required. I do think imagination 
is required. I do think in inventiveness. Um, I, I put in the same frame as questions, um, analogs, analogies that are that are right around us. So, so when someone's, you know, someone can ask a very basic question, are, are you an annual supporter for this organization? I'd say, could we, could we ask a better version of that? And they say, yeah, well, what do you mean? I said, well, let's use an analogy. I say, instead of being an annual supporter, I said, are you the red blood cells for some organization? Are, are you the DW30? Are you motor oil? <laughs> are, you, are you chlorophyll for some organization? And the person who hears it, chlorophyll or red blood cells? What do you mean? And the fundraiser says, well, a shockingly small amount of red blood cells carry oxygen to an entire system. Small amount of oil keeps a car going. Percentage-wise, only 5% of the weight of a tree is chlorophyll, yet it keeps the 95. That's like unrestricted, like sustaining support. Are you that? Well, the, having the analogy or the metaphor, or the imagination there, all of a sudden makes that fundraiser, you're an interesting person. You're you're. You thought this through. You thought that you know. You thought you thought a metaphor. That's that that's trying to help me. Uh, you know, a person asks different. Can't you just put this in the mail? Can't you just send me the materials? Okay. <laughs> and uh, and you know, you just think it through, and you kind of go. So, what would my? Hmm, did you know that I am the brochure? You're what? I, for our organization, I am the brochure, meaning I am the person who we took donated funds. In a faith-based context, we would say the widow's might pays for me to have 150 meetings in the course of a year. And I, I get to go out and meet some fabulous people. I hear their stories. I hear about the world that they're involved in. I ask them questions about the relevance and meaningfulness of our organization. And those 150 stories are vital to us. They keep us relevant. So, and our organization thinks that that was a good use of donor funds to have me go out and meet. So no brochure is possibly as good as me at being able to hear the information that you have to say, translate it, and then decide if a, a bridge could be built and you decide to make a gift. And that's who I am. I'm I am the best brochure this organization could ever create. You know? um, that that kind of uh, parable, that kind of uh, analogy, uh, I imagine is is uh, as important internally as it is externally, because when you're talking to someone, maybe for the first time, because organizations don't do a good job of really continuing to engage people at a personal level. They don't mm -hmm. even thank people properly mm -hmm. a lot of these days. Mm -hmm. um, but still, if you reach someone where their heart is, then hopefully you can not only show your imagination, but you can awaken theirs. But inside, we've been doing things the same way for a long time. So they might say, no, no, we need the printed brochure. We need the case statement. We need this. We need that. We can't go out until we have all these things. So are you also using all this as kind of an internal process? <laughs> culture, a little bit of a culture changer, yes. Yeah, for, for an organization to... Uh, to perhaps to perhaps wake up uh, to uh, the opportunity. Uh, Jay, you may have heard me say that in stewardship and gratitude, uh, which is where I think we fall down. And for many organizations, it's actually the first place to fix 
fix stewardship and fix the gratitude. And when an organization asked me, well, what should we do? And I said, well, I have only two words for you with regard to stewardship and gratitude, surprise and delight. What? And I said, you, 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 you need to be thinking about how you, how you deviate from everybody else with regard to the standards of your stewardship. You want to surprise someone, not scare them, but you want to, you want to stand out and do a little bit more, just a little bit more to exceed expectations. I said, but the second word is actually more important, the word delight. Delight is the, in English, is our, is the word we associate with, oh, you thought of me. Oh, among, among the thousands, I'm the apple of your eye. Oh, so if in our stewardship and in our gratitude, we hold this, imagination piece. How do we surprise, vary from others, and how do we delight? And then how do we do it at scale? You know, so so those kinds of things are the organization has to scratch its head and, its head and go, hmm, how would I like to be thanked? How would I like to be recognized? And how can I then do this in a way that grows? Right. And uh, that, that brings up something I, I'm very curious about there's this tendency if we do any of those things at all to do them in the golden rule playbook in other words that how we th we think we should treat others as we would like to be treated mm -hmm. but i wonder if that's really getting where we need to go if it, because if we're listening to people properly shouldn't we be trying to meet them where they are not where we are yes you're 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 you're, you're right on that it's interesting, Jay. I had in having a conversation with a, a donor, we we drifted into the use of language, and uh, this donor said, "You know, in the last 30, 40 years, I've discovered that we've lost in the philanthropy world the usefulness of one word. We no longer invite people to sacrifice." And I said, "You're right." We, we, I hardly ever hear that. I don't hear it at churches. I don't hear it at secular organizations. And he said, he said, I, I, he said, I, I, I think I have a reason for that. I said, really? I'm all, I'm all ears. And he said, uh, he said, well, as a donor, if I'm asked to sacrifice, and it's rare that I am, I ask myself a question of the organization. And he said, this is the question I asked them. Are you generous? Now, no, this is a donor asking a nonprofit organization if it's generous. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, they have just sufficient for their resources. But if their executive director or leadership have a zero-sum mentality about their stuff, and they, they basically go, we got ours, and good luck to the rest of you, he says, your lack of generosity, your lack of willingness to help others is what stifles my desire to sacrifice for you. But if I see you, your leadership, your organization going, how do we bless others? How do we help others? How do we extend ourselves? How do we give them the benefit of the doubt? He says, I all of a sudden will go, if they come to me, I'll do more because they, they, uh, they've, they've, uh, Jay, we've talked about the principle of the open hand. Uh, the surface area of the hand, when it's fully extended, 
is large enough that things that are bigger than the surface area can actually go on that hand. All right. The downside of keeping the hand fully extended is whatever's in there can get taken out. All right. But really big things can come in and flow through the open hand. Now, if you want to stop stuff flowing out, just close the hand. Surface area contracts. It becomes smaller. But what's in there stays in there and nothing new comes in. Well, organizations get that same challenge. Am I an organization who evidences a principle of being open-handed? You know, where, where our generosity is such that the resources we have, the contacts we have, the here's a foundation you should be talking to. Here's someone else. May I open a door for you? Donors see that and go, mm, that's the kind of spirit that if you asked me to sacrifice, I'd say, yes, I would help you. And that's everything from... Macy's on at uh, on Miracle of 34th Street people yeah. gimbals, <laughs> but it's also maybe how we treat our staff, how we interact with our boards, what we do for the community with our own volunteer time. It's everything we do. Yeah, you're right. Um, you're, you're right. Uh, this sounds like it's far afield from this, but I, I don't think it is. I, I know that. Um, first of all, you're you're uh, such a wonderful storyteller and you can tell the stories about large gifts that you've worked on. And those are very important. They're very meaningful. You've run at them in many, many places you've worked on um, among them, you know, Wycliffe and obviously Gordon College with a very large gift there. But I'm curious about the the uncelebrated, because I think they live in and thrive by the same principles you were just describing yeah. um, as as the ones that we talk about and end up in the newspapers. Uh, could you give an example of something where that was uh, maybe the most meaningful gift to the donor, however you define donor? Mm. I'd love to hear about that, your experience with where something really changed them or mm. helped them mm. transform them. Um, you may know that uh, I, uh, for a number of years, was board chair of um, an organization uh, called the Shepherd's Homes. And the Shepherd's Homes are a chain of orphanages in Kenya. And um, so uh, they're in Nairobi, but they're also, they go down as far as Mombasa and uh, so the coast. And um, so uh, apropos of your request, uh, the story of one of our orphanages in Mombasa, uh, the teacher uh, was teaching generosity and teaching generosity at uh, at Christmas and had encouraged her class uh, to uh, bring something of great value that could be given as your example of sacrifice to the king. And, uh, uh, and you can, you know, when they ask what's great value, something that costs you something, something that, you know, it wasn't easy to obtain. And so the children, these are very poor, they're in an orphanage, but... Um, so they're about maybe 12, the orphanage is maybe 12 miles from the coast. So um, week goes by, comes back to class, and uh, the kids come in. And most of them have made things to bring to the teacher. They made things out of straw, they carved something out of wood, whatever. And they're all really lovely. And, um, and uh, one little boy brings a cowrie shell, you know, and uh, gives a cowrie shell. Look at all these, and it's just a shell. It's like to us, we would think of it as like a rock, you know. And uh, so she looks at all these, and then she, you know, asking the kids what you think of that. And then she sees the cowrie shell, and she says, now, "I'm curious who brought the cowrie shell." And the uh, uh, little boy says, "I did." And he says, uh, 
as you said, that uh, that that uh, that doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be very expensive. Uh, tell me why you thought that this was a expensive gift, and he said, "Well, it's twelve miles to the coast, and it's twelve miles back." I walked to the coast, found the shell, picked it up, and walked back with it. So the expense of my walking is included in the gift of the, <laughs> in the, gift of the shell. <laughs> the teacher kind of, she's a teacher in one of our orphanages and, you know, talking to us, who are sort of Westerners who are providing funds. And I thought, mm-hmm. that says it all. You know, you're, uh, you're, you as a teacher are being taught even by your kids who are learning lessons of generosity in an orphanage. And I'm a guy who's a fundraiser, and I'm getting the best out of it. And I'm telling on your podcast a story of one of our teachers in an orphanage outside of Mombasa. So, so you know. And these examples are everywhere. Uh, if we care to look for them and look yeah. beyond yeah. kind of our definitions. But you, but you talked about something a few minutes ago, too, about the organizations themselves needing to have that spirit of generosity and sacrifice. I don't know. May I ask you also, what's an experience that you've had where a sacrifice has been meaningful to you? Yeah. So we were going to seminary. Um, you know, we decided to sell our home, give away most of the proceeds and head to seminary. We realized, I don't think we can get there, uh, you know, on, on our own. But we were leaving Stanford and we lit, uh, we bought a home in Atherton. So we just unbundled, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, as Martin Luther would say, and Ein Festeburger. And uh, this couple stepped forward and said, we would like to provide for your education while you're in seminary so that you can be wholly focused on that. And um, we, we don't need a tax deduction. We just want to help you. So, and they, they it was, which is just out of the blue, yeah. you know, we barely knew them, but they'd seen us, they'd watched us from afar. They'd have, you know, seen my uh, service to churches and others. And they just stepped forward and said, you know, youth, we think you're supposed to do this. And we know you don't know how you're going to provide for it. But um, in effect, it was an answer that was coming before we even asked. Okay. And uh, so my seminary experience was covered. I, I decided to give away everything. And just, there it was. And it was like, okay, the answer provided. And um, then that couple wanted nothing more than just to say, just receive it and say, thanks. Don't tell anyone. And um, me telling you is the first time I've actually talked about this. So I wonder where they are today. Do you know? She passed away last year at 99 and he had passed away maybe 10 years ago. Um. These aren't footprints on a beach. These things, <laughs> these things last. Right? They do, yeah. So they, yeah. it, they are part of your story. Then you share that with me. And then I learn from it. And hopefully we share it with others. This kind of storytelling that we talk about in fundraising, often as if it's a function of fundraising, can be a lot more meaningful than that. Um, it can be truly, you know, it, it can change us. Um, I, you are now, you've gone through... I usually in this series will go through this narrative of where you went from next to next to next, but that's too hard to do with you because you've done too many things. <laughs> um, but I do want to make sure I touch on one piece and then where you are today and what you're thinking about tomorrow. And that's Wycliffe because um, talk about a an environment in which you are 
probably telling stories or channeling stories in order to bring stories to others. It's the translation of scripture and making that available in, I guess, in theory, every language in the world that is currently spoken and read. Um, but this is not necessarily a story that's understood or known by everybody. Uh, so I should ask that first. It, when you go and you tell people that you worked on this campaign, do they even know what you're talking about sometimes? Most people, most people don't. They, uh, if, I, if I were to say, Jay, so just ballpark and hear about how many languages do you think the United Nations recognizes in this world? Wow, say, I, have, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Say, oh, about 7,000. And um, they die. Every year, languages die. And occasionally, new languages come into existence, too. But about 7,000. Um, a little less than 5% or a little less than 1% of those are, um, are uh, sign languages. So not just oral, but sign. And there's variations in sign languages, too. And um, so about a billion people, maybe a billion and a half people, um, need to lean into some majority language for them to be able to receive information. But that's a problem um, because the majority language is generally the language of the oppressor. It's, it's not your mother tongue. Uh, it's not the language of your secrets. It's not the language of your prayers, the language of your songs, the language of your laughter. It's someone else's language. Um, Peru would be a good example. For 500 years, Spanish has been in Peru. The Quechua live in the mountains, the largest Western Hemisphere indigenous tribe, Quechua. Their ancestors are the Incas. Every time they're asked to speak Spanish, it's, it's, it's a rock, a pebble in the shoes. It's the reminder that they're a conquered people. Uh, that they had a flourishing culture, an absolutely fabulous culture. So, so to require someone to pick up a language of oppression for them to learn, to grow, seems to be unfair. Let's go from the inside, which is language is also key to power. So if you want to have a job or you want to work in a country or a culture where there is a majority language, uh, a very small number get to read and write the majority language. Most everyone else has to learn and speak the trade language. And very often the mother tongue never gets written down. Well, guess who's at the bottom of the pile in almost every culture? Women and children. They're the ones who will never, never read or write a majority language, much less the trade. And certainly no one cares about their mother tongue. It's the oral language, right? And it's the language of the women and the children. So men, by and large, tend to have the majority language, and they tend to also control the power. Women in a village will see that there is a clean water activity taking place, but the brochure is in a majority language. But the chief is never going to get that brochure to her. He's not going to have it translated. And so she's going to continue to see the problems continuing because the water is not clean here. So enter in Bible translation. And Bible translation is such a surprising thing. Translators come to the chief and say, we would like to 
we would like to translate your mother tongue so that it's in a language, it's in a form, written and spoken form, but written form primarily, so that the rest of your village can be literate. And he goes, really? Why should I want that? Why should that be valuable to me? Translator will say, well, chief, usually through a translator, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear your pedigree, your ancestry. You would like me to tell you who my father's, who my ancestors are? And we say, yes. And so I'll sit up straight and he'll begin to go through his genealogy. He'll go back 15 people, 16 people, 17 people, 18 people, 19, 20 people, 25 people, 30 people. Okay, just fabulous. Translator will say, you are a man of great esteem. You can go back 20 generations. I am, yeah, I've memorized this. May I ask, uh, does the rest of your village know your genealogy? No, they don't. I wish they did. Uh, they don't. Oh. May I read you a genealogy of a famous man? And so I open up maybe Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel and read the genealogy of Jesus. And he's listening very intently. And he's going, 45 generations. This is a very famous man. And I say, something else, chief, here. I am going to hand this to another member of my party, and they are going to read it, and it will be word for word correct. And he goes, oh, I see now. I want you to take my mother tongue, and I want you to document my genealogy, and I want to teach you my, have you teach my son how to know my genealogy, and all of my headmen, in my, so that they all can repeat my genealogy in writing. Let me go, thank you, your majesty. We are more than happy to do that. We'll create a dictionary. We'll create um, written fonts. We'll create the documentation of your grammar. We'll probably also translate that um, freshwater, clean water brochure into your mother tongue. And uh, maybe a human rights brochure, an avian flu too, all of which you don't know, but which is coming on your horizon. And we'll also leave you a book of high moral tone to go alongside your poetry, your stories, and everything else. And if you will give us space here, we'll do this and take nothing from you and do it for free. And that's how Bible translation starts in a village. And now this has been, is it, how close is this project to completion? With so, the 7,000 languages. So we've passed, we've, we've passed the inflection point where the number, we're at the high water mark of the number simul simultaneously under translation. It's like 2,400 now new languages are under translation right now. Where, where back in the 90s, uh, new translations were starting at about 19 per year. Now over 200 per year are starting. So, so for those keeping count, uh -huh. This is what $2 billion gets you. But what the meaning of it is, yeah. is that the people in the village, the woman who needs to be able to read the brochure to have clean water for her children gets to have that brochure. Gets to have that. Yeah. It's a, the, the splash of the translation of this. Countries recognize it. There's a lovely article in The Economist. The Economist said, 
Why are Christians doing this as opposed to governments? Well, it turns out that a Christian has a great deal more fear of getting his God's words wrong than any government employee. Government employee might cut corners, might decide they need to do something, but a per- only a person who is passionately called to something because they believe they're actually answering to a higher standard will ensure that they, they labor over getting it right. And they said, it's worth it for that. <laughs> so with that, with your participation in that active participation complete, you're working on other projects today and yeah. you're picking and choosing what to yeah. work on. Yeah. Um, so what's, I know that you don't appear to be doing this out of some kind of ambition. You're doing it for some other kind of reason. So what, what is moving you today? And what is the light you continue to, to move towards in order to, you know, keep your, your active brain going? It's a great question. So impossible projects. I really like ones that have a degree of difficulty that seem, uh, that's a hard one. And where there is a leader, a leader of integrity, somebody who is called into this thing and believes they have a purpose and a passion. So, so my partner and I uh, gravitate toward things that are really, they have a high degree of difficulty, but where, the, where we understand the leader and the leader's wiring. I'll give an example. There's this just um, in the pro-life, pro-choice trench warfare of the last 50 years, um, the dialogue, are you for choice, you for life, whatever. False binaries. Always beware of false binaries. Right? You know. uh, there was a pastor who, maybe 26 years ago, uh, named Tim Keller in New York City, said, there's got to be a third way. <laughs> there almost always has to be a third way. You, know, you for life, you for choice. He said, couldn't there be an organization which says, I'm neither for life nor for choice, I'm for the woman and not pitting the woman against the baby or against the man. I'm actually for the starting of a family under its most trying of circumstances. And that if if we were simply people who bore no judgment and just championed a woman walking into and through a trying circumstance and loved her, took her side, but said, you are, this is most a difficult decision you're going to make, and we're here to help you. And whatever you choose, you're not pushing us away. Choose to abort, we're still going to call you. Choose to have the baby, still going to call you. We're still going to bring our resources. So, so 9,000 families later with teenagers and 20-year-olds and things like this, the largest, <laughs> largest of its kind is right in New York City the capital of abortion. And it has been doing this quietly of saying, are you, are you pro-life or pro-choice? And them saying, neither. We are for the woman, the man, and the child starting in a really challenging circumstance. And we bring no judgment and we bring no doctrine. So it's that kind of an organization where I go, could it be that post-Roe, that is in fact actually what's needed is for people to walk toward women and men and this the 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 um stressful decision they're trying to make minus judgment and say how can we be a help to you how can we love you as you do that 
I imagine that there are people who are intransigent on the, the on that issue from one perspective or another and and the language the language just <laughs> sets them on fire even the discussion does yeah so how do you to go back to where we started this conversation how do you uh kind of remain in this calm place when this is important to you personally yeah and you know it's important to the people that you're talking to that this organization is talking to and you want to help them to get to a place where they can trust one another, talk to one another, and uh, and move forward in a way that's beneficial to the woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, takes it takes a posture that uh, you gotta you you got to actually you have to model a posture that is. I don't have a theology to cram down your throat, and I don't have a. I have authentic questions to ask you, and I am willing to come alongside, you know. 40% of abortions, as you know, are a second or third or fourth abortion. This is this is not some kid. 40% are second, third, or fourth. It's like, no, these are women who, it's a challenging circumstance. So treat them as it's a challenging circumstance. What will help you? Some of them have. They've had two abortions, have two children, now going to have another abortion. It's like, okay, so so you've got the wrong information, the wrong picture of what this woman is going through. You know, uh, we we you see this mistaken belief with regard to advertising and things like that. The key window for making a decision is 72 hours. And the most influential person in that 72 hours is the man. Yet, if you were to go online and look for resources, to find, you know, well, so where this organization is going is through COVID, it paid for this extraordinary research. The company is called Roundfeather. Roundfeather Round Feather is the agency of choice for Google, for Apple, for Audi, for Fortune 50, global Fortune 50 companies. And Roundfeather decided we would like to help you because we think this is actually a better way for us to go. So this is guy, the guy who runs it, he's Indian. He's an Indian genius. And he just goes, I think we need to understand why people choose to do this with no judgment and to understand the harrowing journey that they're in. And his team, liberals and whatever's and whatever's, drop, jaws drop to go, and you would allow us to just walk in and actually try and find the truth on this? So there's a site that's now launched. Go online and find it. It's called Better Clarity. And Better Clarity is a way to online with no judgment and provide resources and ask these sorts of questions that come up to say, how can we coach you? Because they've been doing it in New York for 25 years. And now it's post-COVID. It could be done anywhere in the world. You used a word in the middle of that about theology. And I know you have a belief about a theology of fundraising. Yeah. Maybe as a way to kind of wrap some of this together. Yeah. Can you describe what that is and how one might learn about it and, and apply it regardless of one's, you know, uh, faith tradition? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, as you've looked at my clients, I have maybe 25 universities, D1 type you know, universities. And I would say they probably do not think that they need, need have, or want a theology of fundraising. And I understand that, that they have a philosophy of fundraising. 
over which they overlay their strategy and which is informing their tactics. But say there are many organizations who spring from a faith tradition which deny themselves the sub-basement, the pylons in the ground of a theology that would drive their philosophy, informing their strategy and their tactics. So, so that's one, which is some organizations would really benefit from. You can ask the question, what kind of conversation about the proposition of God works? So you could have a biblical theology. We could have a denominational tradition, which is a theology. Um, you could have a historical theology. This is how pre-Catholic, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever. So, you know, then the, the sort of trends. So, so what is your, whatever your source is going to be, that, that would be, I'd say, an element too. Um, the parts of a theology would be no different, though, than a theology of medicine or a theology of business, which is you start with the nature of God, you go to the nature of humanity, and you go to the nature of how then shall we live and the nature of life and your understandings of each. Most uh, theologies of fundraising begin with this assertion that God owns it all. We get to be stewards, you know said of John D. Rockefeller, how much did he leave behind? The answer is all of it. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, so it, it, we're stewards. Even the wealthiest of us are stewards. So God owns it all. Um, more than that, if your theology is, and God is generous and has built this world in abundance, not in scarcity, and that there's an abundance motif, um, so every statement you make then has a, so therefore, that begins to follow on it. So start with that, move to then our organization. What is our organization permitted to do? What actually is our, what is our preferred future? We've talked about this. Our theology should say, I dream of the day when, and the next word is not the name of my organization. The next word is the client that we're trying to serve, the customer. I dream of the day when, whatever. Okay, so the object of this is the relationship between your understanding of God and this object. And if so, you'll call certain things out, that it needs funds, and that those funds we will ask for and will ask for a way that's non-manipulative, that we will build rejoicing and celebration and good stewardship into this. Why? because it's the right thing to do according to the standard of the one that we get it from. Um, that uh, we, we will take pains to not steal any eternal blessing by giving them too much earthly recognition. Um, that, uh, that we will eschew fear as a base that will look for those whose hearts are warmed and who are drawn to it, uh, that will make no judgment with regard to the source of the funds, because it could be secular, just like Nehemiah received money from Artaxerxes to rebuild walls. We'll, we'll, we'll withhold judgment on the source of the funds, because we'll, we were looking at the heart of the donor, and uh, are they being generous? Is it a generosity that's coming from and, uh, and then finally, what tools and techniques we decide are going to be reputable for us, are allowed for us, and which ones we go, you know, we decide to let those go. They're not going to be a part of our toolbox or our toolkit. So those basic pieces stemming from your theology form into about a page 
and most organizations that decide to create a theology of fundraising have a page of eight or nine statements and then supported with their little, if it's scriptural quotes or if it's a Catholic, for instance, it's like catechetical approach or Jewish, you know, it's from the Mishnah, it's from the Torah, whatever, what the, you know, uh, I've had not had any supported by Quranic yet, but that's coming too. I think there will be a, there will be a Muslim uh, theology of, uh, of, uh, of giving. And um, so. There's a lot to unpack in all this, Paul. And I'm, uh, I'm just struck by the fact that you continue looking for the, the bigger, the bigger challenges, the harder tasks. And this seems as much from not only your faith, but also an intellectual hunger. Yes. I'd agree. Um, I'm just wondering what you would say to the Paul who was, you know, back there trying to figure some of this stuff out before he went to Stanford. If you would have given him any recommendation to take a different path right then and there, or if you <gasps> needed to go through what you went through to get to where you are. Um, and the, the sum is I am the man I am today because I went the path I went. Yeah. So, um, and if I told him how, how painful it was going to be or whatever, probably he would have chickened out. Uh, but it's been, it's been a lovely, it's really been a lovely, actually a joyous walk. Um, I, I don't anticipate retiring, uh, which is like, okay, I'm, because I'm having really too much fun continuing to explore this. I, I've said to you in, in other contexts that that um, uh, awakening to the next generation, a technologically mediated generation of how to do all this, it's a big deal. How to do it cross-culturally, you know, to how people with uh, working with Anglo culture, but also Anglos working in South Asian cultures. It's just... There's so much to unpack. Uh, how language plays a, a, a role. The the shifting introduction of new technologies and new currencies that are technology based. It's like wow. Okay, so these frontiers continue to kind of pop up. Ours is not a static area. It is a growing and dynamic area, and that there's still work to be done. Lots of work to be done. So, thank you, Paul. This is this is beautiful. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.